Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachrin, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in American Politics. Today I'm speaking with Professor Corey Robin about his book, The Enigma of Clarence Thomas, published by Metropolitan Books. Corey is Distinguished Professor of Political Science at Brooklyn College and the CUNY Graduate Center. In this book, he analyzes the life and thought of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Corey makes the case that Justice Thomas is not only one of the most influential people in American politics today, but that his worldview is also deeply misunderstood. Corey, thank you so much for joining me today in the New Books Network. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. So the first question I'd like to ask you, and it's always the the first question I ask, is if you could just tell me a little about your background and what made you decide to write a book about Clarence Thomas. Well, I'm a political scientist um, and have written quite a bit about reactionary politics over the years. Um, And I didn't go seeking out this topic. It came to me. Um, There was a group of people, uh, two political scientists who were doing an anthology of African-American political thought, and they wanted somebody to write something about Clarence Thomas. um, And they turned to me because I had written about the right, and I thought I was finished with the right. Um, but I agreed to do it, um, somewhat reluctantly, um, and was really surprised by what I found out, um, both about Thomas's background and his life story, but also the connection between that life story and his actual jurisprudence. And it was, it was such a, a surprise and unanticipated, um, uh, story that, I felt like there was something there that had to be told to uh, to a wider audience. Yeah. So most of your work, I, you know, you, you wrote another book, The Reactionary Mind, which is a, a really interesting collection of essays about American conservatism. And I'm wondering just sort of generally before diving into uh, Thomas, you know, what is it about this subject that you find so fascinating? And, you know, how would you sort of characterize the the perspective you take on conservatism? Because I think that you have a approach to thinking about conservative thought that is, you know, I, I don't know, maybe a little bit more different in certain ways can be sympathetic, but also interestingly critical. Uh, how would you sort of characterize your perspective? Um, well, yeah, I'm someone on the left um, and I quite a bit older than you are. I was born in 1967 and came of age during the late 1970s and the early Reagan era. Um, So conservatism and the right were uh, really part of the world that I grew up in um, and never really thought that much about, to be honest with you. Um, But increasingly, as I began to study the right, I I realized that... um, People didn't, I thought people were really getting the right wrong, as it were, and that many of the themes that I think are interested, are of interest, both politically and intellectually to the left, were being pursued with a lot more um, aplomb on the right. I mean, this is really in the 1990s and and in the aughts. Um, This is all, you know, preoccupied, pre-even Obama, uh, when, you know, the entire world of the left was circumscribed by Bill and Hillary Clinton. Um, So it it seemed to me that both the fact that the right was misunderstood 
Um, many people, uh, both on the right and the left, talked about the right as the kind of the responsible ruling class, the people who are reality based, um, as opposed to the utopian hippie wannabes of the left. Um, and I felt like that was completely wrong, that that really did not understand the very utopian dimensions of the right, the very um, uh, radical dimensions of the right, um, the extraordinarily ideological dimensions of the right, the movement element of the right. Now, a lot of this stuff now, I think, seems, um, well, utopian, not so much, but ideology, movement, the radicalism, that all seems sort of obvious. Um, but that was not the case as recently as, I mean, my book, The Reactionary Mind, came out in 2011, and it was greeted with a lot of hostility, particularly from liberals. So I would say, you know, as recently as as 10 years ago, people didn't see those dimensions of the right. Um, and uh, so that's really what I, uh, I focused on. And then one other thing I should say about my approach to the right is that um, where conservatives and analysts of conservatism uh, we'll talk about the right as a as either a kind of commitment to freedom, individual freedom, as opposed to collectivist or state freedom, or uh, traditionalist or prudential. All of these watchwords that the right has developed over the years. Um, I think the fundamental issue um, around which the right organizes and and understands itself even is as a, a an oppositional move, a counter movement to movements of um, emancipation, of social emancipation from below. And that, and I, I trace this going back to uh, Edmund Burke and, and, and the French Revolution. I think that this book on Clarence Thomas is interesting because, you know, as you reveal in the book, Thomas, Thomas's views as a child and as a young man were not the views that he has now. He still has a, contains in his view, still contains a lot of the, the threads that he would begin to develop in college. But how would you sort of, you know, describe uh, Thomas's childhood and his early years, his sort of early political consciousness? What was that like for him? Well, Thomas was born in 1946 or 48, I can't remember the exact year, in uh, Pinpoint, Georgia, which is um, a small coastal town Um uh, in uh, along the Atlantic seaboard, not that far from Savannah. It was a town that was founded by formerly enslaved people after the Civil War. Um, he was born into poverty. Um, his father left him when he was very young um, and was raised by his mother, he and his brother and his sister. And um, when he was around five or six years old, um, she, she just couldn't um, support um, her, her children anymore. So he and his brother went to live with his grandfather. And this was probably the most formative, significant um, event in his life. His grandfather was also from a, a fairly you know, poor working class background, but had willed himself uh, to become what we'd call a small business owner. He was a fuel delivery, um, owned his fuel delivery business and then ended up being quite successful um, ended up owning property in Savannah, so was became a man of some means, but never lost contact with that background he had. And he was a man of iron will and discipline. He was a very stern, patriarchal figure. Um, he 
was uh, he had extraordinarily strict rules, um, and he terrified uh, the crap out of Clarence Thomas. Um, and uh, I, I, you get hints that you know Thomas really loathed him in many ways as he was growing up, but as he became older, uh, Thomas really became came to appreciate this man as as the man who had saved his life, basically, um, th- precisely through that iron will, that discipline, and that the, the terror that he inflicted, Thomas felt that he, um, that man had created the seeds of his own self, his own, his own will to power, as it were. Um, and uh, he, so he ends up, you know, going to Catholic school, his, his, his grandfather's Catholic. Um, and uh, in 1968 is recruited to come to Holy Cross um, in the north, in, in in Worcester, outside of Boston, um, and it's a Catholic school, a Catholic university that is integrating. And Thomas is part of a fairly remarkable group of young black men um, who are uh, first or second year students that are recruited. I think there were about eighteen of them, who several of whom become quite famous and successful in their own right. Um, and and Thomas becomes a um, a campus militant. Uh, he is the one of the founders of the Black Student Union, um, and becomes the secretary treasurer of the of the Black Student Union. And they are committed to, you know, this is 1968, 1969. This is the the civil. You know, we have now passed the peak of the civil rights movement, which is really 1968. Um, Martin Luther King has been assassinated. Malcolm X has been assassinated. Bobby Kennedy has been assassinated all the landmark pieces of legislation that are going to pass have been passed. So it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a, a sour moment, um, I think, um, for the black freedom struggle, um, that continues. And, and so you see this in, in the kind of campus politics, it's, it's much more separatist. Um, the very fact that they called themselves a black student union, I mean, black was still a kind of a term of art that, you know, had migrated from the West coast. It was, it had a more militant sound to it than Negro or some of the other terms. Um, and they are committed, like I said, to, uh, you know, to kind of black, black separatism is too strong at this point, but, um, they, you know, are in favor of, you know, of course, you know, some of the, what will become standard demands of black students in colleges everywhere, um, black literature, uh, more black professors, more black students, um, but also, you know, black dormitories, um, black, you know, separate organizations for black people. Uh, and they type up a kind of manifesto um, that has several, you know, kind of a, a comprehensive set of points and planks and uh, one of them is is you know against interracial uh, romance, interracial dating, and and Thomas is one of the most militant, by the way, on this particular topic. He would go around campus and he would call out um, couples that were interracial couples that he would see. Um, he also leads you know what's considered to be the most um, important um, uh, demonstration, oh, not demonstration, just a walkout, a campus walkout of black students in protest of what's going on with uh, General Electric and their recruitment practices at the college. So he is, um, you know, he is, he's, he's out there, you know, Malcolm X uh, posters on the wall He memorizes Malcolm X speeches by listening to records, you know, back then there was, this is pre internet, pre CDs, you know, and all that. 
uh, he you get you'd get records um, uh, where you'd listen to speeches and 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 he would memorize them and still know them years later. Um, and he he reads Malcolm X. Um, he he's involved in um, uh, a kind of a, a breakfast school breakfast program uh, modeled on the Black Panthers. He goes to demonstrations in D.C. and in New Haven, in Boston, some violent demonstrations, um, and is really steeped in the philosophy of uh, essentially black nationalism, kind of black separatism, and black nationalism. So I'll, I'll stop right there because I've gone on quite a bit, but that's that sets you up for the for the for the story of Clarence Thomas. Yeah, I think that you know this this root of this kind of intellectual flowering for him and black nationalism was, you know, in many ways, it's, it's some of the most fascinating parts of the book that you discuss. And I think that it's interesting because I think a lot of people, uh, especially in, you know, in the, maybe the circles that, that Thomas would have been in in Yale and other liberal elite intellectual circles wouldn't have had the same kind of knowledge or, or understanding of black nationalism. So, you know, what, what is black nationalism and what are some of the, the core ideas in it and who are the, the, the central thinkers of, of black nationalism? So black nationalism is, is, is a philosophy, a politics, a practice that goes back to the 19th century, um, is, is, uh, takes root in, in, in the United States. Um, uh, you know, it has multiple strands and dimensions um, a formative one is just the the idea that black people are, uh, form a distinct and separate culture that is, um, um, and 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 in more radical forms, uh, uh, you know, which should take the form of a of a nation state, either um, a state apart from the United apart from the the territorial United States, um, whether it be in Liberia or in other parts of Africa or, or in the Caribbean. Um, or uh, what was called the later came to be called the Black Belt, um, ex- sort of a, a sovereign subunit of states on the continental United States. Um, but um, since since it's such a, a loose term that takes different forms over time, and and I really want to stress this because it's critical to understanding Thomas's nationalism is that the Black nationalism of the 1840s and the 1850s doesn't look like the black nationalism in the 1890s or the 1920s, which doesn't look like the black nationalism of the 1960s and the 1970s. So people have specific ideas of what black nationalism is, but like any other ideology, it changes across time. Um, And so to to focus on one specific form is is mistaken. Um, But what I would say, um, and I follow the philosopher uh, Tommy Shelby in this regard, is, is that you know, black nationalism is ultimately a, a view that black fate, the fate of black people in the United States, um, both as individuals and as collective, is apart from, will be determined separately from the fate of the rest of America, whether that be white, brown, um, or other, uh, you know, ethnic groups in, in America. So it's, it's a sense of apartness um, and a sense that black fate is separate. Um, the yeah, I'll, I'll I'll stop right there. And when when Thomas sort of first becomes a a black nationalist or starts to you know um, read a lot of this material and and you know participate in the Black Student Union, um, 
at this point, he still does not identify as a conservative. It's, it's, this is something that's kind of separate from a, a particular political identity. He still is, would you say at this point, he identifies with the left? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, and uh, the, the kind of range, both the range of the activities and people's memories of him. Um, and, you know, these are not necessarily people who are his allies, by the way. These are also people who are you know, critics from him and of independent, you know, journalists who have written about this moment in time in the archival record. Um, you know, he definitely identifies the left. You can see a photograph of him leading a walkout, you know, with the black power salute like this and the, in the, in the black beret. Um, so he has both the style, the iconography, um, and, um, he, after the walkout, he, he writes an article in the student newspaper, you know, where he says this was a kind of a collective moment of, of the black man's liberation. So, um, you know, and the fact that it was a walkout, not a sit-in, you know, which is what some other black students were proposing. He said, no, you know, we have to demonstrate that we are not a part of this institution. Uh, and it was very important to him that they left the campus, they, that they made palpable the absence of black faces on the campus. So that was definitely the style and, and, and mode of his thinking um, as an undergraduate. And that he brings, and that it continues actually in ways when he goes to Yale Law School in 1971, um, he becomes more heterodox in his thinking, but you know he has the Pan-African flag flying in his, um, in his, uh, in his, his, Department um, and uh, you know dresses again in the style of I wouldn't say black nationalist anymore, uh, but of a kind of southern black a southern black man apart from the rest of, of the community. Yeah, how does his experience at at Yale shape him? Uh, and you know, also speak you know speaking to that, like you mentioned, that he starts to identi- you know identify or cast himself as, as as not a northerner. What's his kind of his sense of of North versus South, and how does his perception of Northern liberal elites kind of shape his his views and ultimately his eventual turn to to being conservative? The way he narrates it is that in the South he had known obviously racism, he um, and the color line. Um, it was obvious; it was overt. Um, white people were white people. The North was a more confusing uh, place for him. Like many Southern Black students who go North to college, um, this is a fairly common experience. They go North thinking they're heading to the promised land. And um, after all, you know, they've been recruited as Black students. Uh, They've been told, you know, you're welcome here. We want you to come here. But then they have experiences like what he had at Holy Cross, where um, white students were, they were asked, are you willing to have a black um, roommate? Um, black students were never asked that question. White students were surveyed and at Holy Cross, and they, you know, fairly large number of them would say things like "black people smell differently" and all the rest of it. So it was that dis- the, the dissonance or the disparity between a kind of overt welcoming and an overt rejection of the Southern color line with the reality that's all too familiar. Um, of of white racism, um, so much so that years later, you know, when the Boston busing riots happen in 1975, you know, none of this comes as a surprise to him because he will feel like he experienced a racism in the North that was far more pernicious 
um, and corrosive than that which he saw in the South. And he will ultimately use um, a metaphor that is quite similar to the metaphor that um, Malcolm X used to, to distinguish between Northerners, or a certain kind of a Northern racist versus Southern racist. Thomas refers to, you know, that Northern racists are like water moccasins, you know, which I, I don't know much about snakes, but I gather that they, they seem kind of relatively harmless and innocuous, but are, you know, quite dangerous, whereas Southern uh, racists are like copperheads. And, you know, um, Ma- Malcolm X will talk about foxes versus wolves. You know, one, one kind of animal doesn't seem so dangerous, but is quite lethal. The other is overtly dangerous. You notice you're clear from. And that's his um, understanding. This is exacerbated even more so at Yale. Um, uh, Thomas, again, is recruited to Yale and he gets there um, as part of a affirmative action program, a much more stringent affirmative action program than the, than the one that had preceded in earlier classes. Um, and he feels like he is constantly being reminded of this, um, that he is there by the, by the good, by the grace and the good wishes of white people that white benevolence um, is the source of his success. And he makes a comment. He said, you know, whatever I achieved, whatever any of us achieved in the South, nobody could ever say it was because of white people. It was in spite of white people. And whether as, as an individual or as a collective. In the North, all of our achievements, individually and collectively, were tainted as the product of white benevolence. And he, you know, makes a parallel. Um, during the days of slavery and enslavement, you may not have been enslaved, but by virtue of being black, you were still tarnished with um, the, 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 the stain of enslavement and the shame and the, the scar and the sin that went with that, regardless of whether you were free or enslaved. And likewise, um, he would make the he will make this case, in, you know, quite famously on the Supreme Court that affirmative action tarnishes all black students, whether they are there as affirmative action students or not. And this was very much his experience um, at Yale University, and something he takes with him, you know, and, and never, I, you know, never gets gets over. Essentially, you you've talked about it quite a bit, but, you know, I want to ask, you know, I guess more, more pointedly, like, you, you know, what is, what does Thomas see as racism in America? Like he, does he think of racism as, as structural racism, as racism just individually in people's hearts? Is it cultural? Um, you know, w- what is, what is Thomas's real view on the source of racism? Um, if there's a solution to racism, if he sees that there's a solution and also, you know, you've, already, you've, mentioned it with the affirmative action a little bit, you know, what, what role does he see race playing in the constitution? Right. There's a, a, a lot in those, uh, in that question. Yeah, take it whatever direction you'd like. <laughs> um, I would say the first thing is, is that he thinks that um, uh, racism has undiscoverable roots. And because those roots are undiscoverable, um, you know, it's essentially almost essentially rootless. It cannot be, uprooted. So there is a very pessimistic, very um, uh, trans-historical understanding of racism, almost as a kind of psychological attitude 
um, as an attitude, attitudinal. But unlike a lot of conservatives who will focus on, you know, if they even acknowledge it, conscious bias, um, Thomas is very sympathetic to the idea that there are, which is uh, that that racism is essentially a form of unconscious bias. Um, And he has affirmed this again and again and again in his Supreme Court opinions. And this is important because this is the dominant model in all the kind of social psychology of racism is, is that it, it's the form of, you know, unconscious bias. Um, so it, it is, it is, um, rootless and therefore transhistorical. It is rooted in, um, not rooted. It, it takes, often takes an unconscious form. And then the last thing that I would say about it, and again, again, this connects him, I think with a lot of mainstream views about race in, in the social sciences um, is that it, it, it takes its form, um, not just unconsciously, but as a stigma. It is a way of viewing Black people as essentially stigmatized as less than. Um, and that something like affirmative action, um, affirmative action, he's you know very clear on this, does not create racism in America, which is what a lot of conservatives would say. Thomas is quite clear that racism predates affirmative action, but that affirmative action reinforces and in fact is the most common form, he would say today, of racism because it's the most common form of the perpetuation of stigmas as as Black people less capable, as less able. Now, you know, anybody who pays attention to these things or pays attention to his opinions, it'll see, you know, this is a kind of stigma that affects um, a certain class of Black people. It's not, you know, uh, it's not something that takes its form in police bias, for instance. Thomas, you know, um, is almost you know systemically uninterested. Or we'll get into that issue later. It's more complicated than that. But it takes its form in places like universities, um, certain kind of professional managerial workplaces, where affirmative action, as it's contemporarily understood, um, uh, is most pervasive. So I would say those are kind of the key elements. It's it's rootlessness and therefore its permanence and transhistorical nature. It's unconsciousness and that it it it, it really expresses itself as a stigma of a way of, of viewing people unconsciously or not as 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 less capable and less able than. Some, something that you that you discuss, and I think that you know this relates to Thomas's views on on you know the role of race and the government. Is is that Thomas de- starts to develop a sort of deep suspicion of the government and the ability for the government to address issues of, of racism, um, but he seems to have a more optimistic view of of the market. Uh, so, h- how does Thomas sort of come around on from being someone on the left to someone who starts to embrace uh, capitalism and free market? And obviously, you know, he becomes uh, uh, ends up being and sort of becomes. Uh, uh, put in a place to eventually uh, be on the Supreme Court through being in the Reagan administration, which is, you know, of course, one of the most free market, ideologically free market oriented administrations in, you know, <laughs> political history. Uh, but yeah, how does Th- how does Thomas's how does Thomas sort of develop a uh, a pro capitalistic view and a suspicion of the government? Well, I think we should actually start with the, the, the very black nationalism that we mentioned earlier. And again, I think this is where people have a lot of either romantic or superficial understandings of black nationalism. 
but, but black nationalists have always had a fairly skeptical view of the American government. Uh, Marcus Garvey, you know, notori- most famously, but also Malcolm X. Um, and I've also had a kind of sympathetic view of the market. You, you know, parts of the autobiography of Malcolm X, he talks about, you know, the importance of things like Black-owned businesses, patronizing, you know, black, um, uh, black products, black produce, you know, and black hiring black workers and so forth. Um, and so this has always been a part of the black nationalist tradition, a skepticism of the state and an embrace of the market or black capitalism. But in the moment that Thomas is uh, a, a militant on the left, um, you know, the, the, the freedom struggle, as I said, is, is really going through a, a, a slow awakening to defeat. Um, this is not 1965. It's not 1964. It's, you know, 1968 with the election of, of Richard Nixon um, and then the re-election in 1972. This is this moment where, um, you know, the, the historiography shows that black activists, black people who were involved in the, the struggle really felt like, okay, the, the, the heyday is over. You know, this moment is uh, this sense of defeat, the sense that we have uh, among black people that we have to take care of ourselves. Um, and a real, uh, the sense of defeat is, uh, is much broader. It's not simply um, that uh, the state isn't going to, the national state isn't going to do anything for you. It's that politics can't do anything for you. And by politics, I mean everything from protest, protest politics to social movements to more radical forms of, uh, you know, violence and black act, uh, black political activity. So, um, you know, that's the shadow that hangs over everything. And then meanwhile, a lot of local black activists who are self-identified black nationalists, black power activists, are involved in economic experiments where they are trying to create the institutions of black capitalism. Um, so, you know, pushing for things like home loans for small business, uh, you know, sometimes it can take the form of cooperatives and collectives, but nevertheless, it's trying to create a separate black economy. So this is really the context in which Clarence Thomas um, was part of the left. And so, um, once he is starts reading more and reading, and particularly one person who was really an influence on him was Thomas Sowell, the um, the economist, black economist, um, who's uh, you know wrote this remarkable book on called Race and Economics that is becomes sort of Thomas's Bible. Um, you know, he's got underlining. He buys multiple copies. He goes to see Tom, um, uh, Sowell in person. Um, who this is, he's now moved out to Missouri, Thomas has. Um, and uh, so um, the idea of black capitalism starts to make increasing amount of sense. And, and I, if we want to step back from the, 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 the immediate politics and the partisanship of it all, I mean, I would say that the idea is, is that if the goal is something like black sovereignty, not complete black sovereignty, which is an impossibility for for Thomas and for many black nationalists, but, but partial sovereignty, um, the state is always going to be the sphere of white domination simply because white people are the majority. Thomas says this, you know, a remarkable interview he gives to Juan Williams, the journalist in 1987 in the Atlantic. And he said, you know, let's, let's just assume you could partial power out in a kind of group way. So uh, white people would get X amount of power, 
Latinos would get Y amount and black people, you know, Z. Who's going to come out on top and who's going to come out on bottom? He says on the bottom is always going to be black people. Um, the only other group that might be worse off are Native Americans. So this is his view of what politics is about. It's about white majoritarianism. Uh, it's a winner-take-all kind of a system. There is no room there for Black people. And to the extent that Black people would do well, it will always be because of that old um, specter that haunts him from his days at Yale, white benevolence. It will be because white people um, are, you know, want to help. And that which the white hand can give, uh, the white hand can take away. So there's this sense of um, of dependence uh, that is created um, and, and a loss of independence. Uh, and so that's what politics is about. The economy is different, Thomas believes. Um, and here, the autobiographical dimension, I think, is important. Um, he thinks back to his grandfather. There was a whole Black community that didn't get fuel in Savannah. So what did his grandfather do? He started getting wood and he delivered wood to black people. And he built up a business this way by filling a niche. The capitalist economy, um, I mean, all economies are about unfulfilled niches. And, um, you know, that's what uh, his that's what his grandfather uh, did. And he Thomas comes to see this as a story of um, a black possibility uh, through participation in a black economy. It can mean black owned businesses. It can mean uh, black, uh, you know, workers. It takes multiple forms. Um, but but that's really um, how he starts viewing things and how he makes his migration to the right over the course between, I'd say, from 1975, you know, on into the 1980s. So how does Thomas eventually join the Reagan administration? And wh what is that experience like for him when he's essentially, you know, out and about as a as a conservative and gaining some prominence? Yeah, he he goes to Washington with John Danforth, who will, is going to become famous as a senator, um, becomes a bigger figure in the 90s. And he goes as a staffer for John Danforth uh, from Missouri. Um, but he's, uh, you know, he's an up and comer and he goes to some, a very famous conference called the Fairmount Conference in San Francisco of black conservatives. And again, Juan Williams writes this story in the Washington Post. Actually, this is 1980. Um, this is a kind of a, a, a new voice of a new generation of black, um, activists on the right. Um, and it puts him, puts Thomas kind of front and center um, you know, as a, as a spokesperson. And so he's, you know, the Reagan administration um, is, you know, famously interested in hiring black people. Um, and, you know, he is, um, you know, he's scooped up right away. Um, first in, uh, I think it's the Department of Education, which is how he comes to work with Anita Hill. Uh, and then very quickly moves over to the um, EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, where he remains for the for the duration of the Reagan administration. And you know, once he is finally appointed, what what you know, what sort of puts him in the position to get appointed? Because I think that you know, even Thomas will admit that he, even though they said that he people you know said, oh, he's the most qualified person. Thomas Thomas will be one of the first people to say that. 
he wasn't the most qualified person. So how does he actually join the Supreme Court? And then, you know, after that, uh, you know, obviously he, he is probably one of the most famous, with the exception of maybe, you know, Robert Bork and Brett Kavanaugh in recent history, is probably one of the most famous um, confirmation hearings in uh, Supreme Court history. So, you know, how does how, what what actually happens there? How does that, how does that process unfold? Um, so you know, Thomas, like I said, he spends the duration of the Reagan administration at the EEOC. He um, is uh, he he takes a curious path. He sometimes distances himself from the Reagan administration and talks about quite openly about the the overt racists in the Reagan administration. Um, Again, shades of Yale. He says he prefers being there because um, they're open about it. He knows whom he is dealing with. There's none of the kind of double dealing he's come to expect from white liberals and progressives. Um, and uh, you know, he makes a name for himself. He's he's uh, you know definitely a right wing ideologue. And then when the time comes and George H. W. Bush is elected, you know, the Bush administration is looking, this is Bush Sr., is looking at the Supreme Court, and it's quite obvious that um, several members of the court are quite old, and Thurgood Marshall being one of them um, in failing health. And so they put, you know, they they understand that they're going to have to fill um, uh, Marshall's seat with another black person. And Thomas is, you know, one of a few. There's some other people that they're looking at, but they put him on a fast track. He gets put onto the uh, Court of Appeals, the Washington, the D.C. Court of Appeals, which is kind of the last step. It's his first judicial appointment. Um, and um, so he doesn't have much time to kind of issue rulings that are all that controversial, though some get some notice. Um, so when the time comes, um, he's kind of a natural uh, person for the Bush administration to turn to. He's got this great story from, you know, he's from Pinpoint, Georgia. Um, and, you know, even though he is a right-wing ideologue, pretty hardcore, um, he also has this black inflected conservatism. Um, you know, he is, uh, and and for a while, I mean, he's, a, uh, the appointment is announced um, on June of 19, 1991, yeah, June or July, you know, the beginning of the summer, um, Marshall steps down and the appointment is announced. And um, he, for a time, um, black um, organizations are a little bit not sure what to do. Um, it's obvious that this guy is a right winger, but, you know, um, he has a lot of support among black voters. Interestingly, Jim Clyburn, um, who's now the number three or number two guy in the you know the House of Representatives today was a he was a South Carolina public government official you know back then he testifies in favor of Clarence Thomas um, so you know it's it, black organizations are struggling then this this bombshell comes out and you know well it starts happening in the late summer early September of um, these accusations from Anita Hill. Um, I mean, let me back up for a second. So he, he goes through his uh, confirmation and it's not the most, you know, gripping testimony, but he survives it. And so the, you know, the thought is he's going to be approved um, pretty widely, including by a lot of Democrats like Joe Biden. Um, and then at the tail end of the hearings, this story that had been kind of developing quietly over the course of the summer um, uh, explodes 
um, that he is being accused of sexual harassment um, by a former um, colleague of his, Anita Hill, who is a black woman. Um, and then, you know, the hearings take on this, you know, it's, it, it's, it's kind of one of the weirdest moments in American politics because the nature of the, the testimony um, is, is sort of incredibly lurid. You have scenes of Orrin Hatch, who's this very straight-laced Mormon Utah senator, reading passages from The Exorcist involving uh, pubic hair on Coke cans and, and claiming that Anita Hill fabricated her, her, her story based on readings from The Exorcist. It's all over the place. It's kind of a circus. Um, but at the heart is the story of, you know, one woman, uh, Anita Hill, who seems extraordinarily credible herself from an extremely conservative background um, in Oklahoma, Christian background, um, black family. And um, this guy, Clarence Thomas, who most of America doesn't really know. Um, and so it gets uh, pitted as uh, ultimately, I mean, many ways, but a story of race versus gender with Thomas representing the race and Anita Hill representing her gender. Um, and in fact, famously, this is the, kind of the moment where intersectionalism as a theory is born. Um, so that's, you know, the story. And he gets confirmed in the end. Um, it's the closest confirmation vote in American history, 52 to 48 in some ways, a kind of a bellwether of where we are now, where all these confirmation votes are pretty much straight party line votes. I mean, that wasn't quite straight party line, but almost straight. Um, and um, and then joins the court. Um, so that would be yeah, in the in the in the fall of nineteen ninety one. So you know, I think now now that in our in our sort of recounting, uh, we have Thomas is now in the Supreme Court, and I think that you know. Part of the reason why I reached out to you and wanted to talk to you about this is obviously because, uh, you know, Thomas has been in the news, you know, front page, uh, <laughs> seemingly once every every week or so. Um, and I actually initially read this book about two and a half years ago. I think it came out in 2019. Yeah. And, you know, of course, then I thought Thomas, oh, he's a fascinating figure, clearly very influential and important, only becoming more important as he becomes, you know, the the most uh, longest tenured member on the court. Uh, and, you know, I think, think before, you know, when I first learned about Thomas, what I knew about him and it's what everyone knows is that he doesn't speak from the bench. Obviously, that doesn't really matter because it's not being a justice isn't about talking, it's about writing opinions. Uh, and, you know, my sort of question for you before sort of drilling down a little bit, maybe into some of his views on the Constitution is, you know, how, I don't know, what, what do you think about Thomas's uh, kind of explosion to prominence? Uh, was it something that you expected? Is it taking you by surprise? And what do you think that it means for just the future of American politics? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I, the experience with this book is, a, is somewhat similar to my experience with my last book. You know, we talked earlier about the reactionary mind. When it first came out, it was, um, you know, really attacked and then had a kind of a second life um, in 2016 with the rise of Trump. And all of a sudden it seemed like, oh, all those things that they were, I was saying about the right turned out to be the case. Um, 
this book, the Clarence, Clarence Thomas book was critically well received, but, you know, um, in reviews, very well received. But I think there was a sense that, okay, you know, this is like, you know, kind of what you said, this is interesting. It's like something to watch, but, you know, it's not Clarence Thomas's court. It's, you know, uh, John Roberts's court. And before that's, you know, Justice Scalia's court. There's always some other white dude, um, you know, whose court it is. And the argument of this book was, no, this is Clarence Thomas's court, you know, and not only for the reason you said, you know, it's the longest serving justice, which means he's this, you know, the senior most justice. And when he's not on the same side as Roberts, he gets to decide who writes the opinions. Um, but more important than that, he has a history, a kind of a stealth justice of writing these opinions that are initially either ignored or dismissed, um, sending out positions that ultimately come to be embraced. Now, I should say not embraced because he's, you know, the most, um, you know, persuasive logician or anything like that. But of course, that's never the way Supreme Court opinions get taken up. Um, it, you know, it's the accident of appointments and the fact that there's a, you know, just becoming a, an increasingly right wing court. But nevertheless, uh, you know, he was the one who was out of the gate on, uh, um, for instance, the right to bear arms, that that's a personal individual right and not something that's just a function of state militias, which is traditionally how the 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 uh, uh, the the, um, the Second Amendment had been interpreted. Um, a lot of his campaign campaign finance positions were very out there. Uh, ultimately, come to be embraced by and um, found in you know Citizens United, um, and uh, you know now everybody's paying attention because with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, Thomas writes this um, uh, uh, concurring opinion where he says against what Alito has said, um, again, not the first time he takes positions that are in opposition to his conservative brethren. He says, you know, you, if you overturn Roe uh, on these grounds, here's what's, here's what's going to go next. And everybody knows, you know, gay marriage, contraception, uh, and so on. So, um, you know, that track record, um, you know, makes people pay attention. Um, and, uh, I'm not really surprised, honestly, because um, this has been this it's kind of this is the way the story has gone, you know, thus far, and the writing was all on the wall. I mean, I I, I said it in 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 the book, um, and what needs to really be explained is not why everybody's paying attention now, but why didn't they pay attention then? Um, because this was all there, um, and you know. Um, as I say in the book, you know, conservative black nationalism to scholars and people, you know, who know about this, there's nothing new in that. It is strange to have a conservative black nationalist on the Supreme Court, and even stranger that he's now the most powerful person on the court. Um, and most strange of all, that up until you know three or four weeks ago, nobody seemed to know it. Uh, and and so that is, I think, the what needs to be explained. I think, you know, this, this is maybe a more personal question for you that, you know, I, I saw that you had the, the, an article or the op-ed in the New York Times recently, and then obviously, you know, there's been a bit more interest in Thomas, what, what does Thomas actually believe? Because, you know, of course, the, the going opinion was that he's just Scalia's puppet and that he doesn't have any thoughts of his own, which of course, you know, is, a, is, is pretty racist in its own right. Uh, but now everyone is treating Thomas as like, oh, he's actually a serious, you know, he's a serious, he's a serious person who, who actually has, uh, has a 
project of his, a constitutional project in view of his own. So I guess, you know, what has been your experience with everyone kind of, you know, waking up to this and people now having to, uh, you know, accept this, uh, you know, this, um, this new, uh, or for them, this new uh, recognition of what Thomas's views and beliefs are? Uh, Wow. I mean, I'm not sure how to answer the question, what my experience of it has been. I mean, I I think, um, yeah, I I don't know. I'm, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know how to answer that. I guess I'm sorry. I'm just going to punt on that one. Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, obviously, uh, <laughs> you know, it's still, everything is also still rapidly unfolding. And I think that, you know, as with as new uh, new uh, opinions continue to come out, like the, the, the 6-3 conservative majority is going to further strengthen his position and we'll probably see Thomas, you know, Thomas feeling even more vindicated. I, I guess, I guess the question I want to ask, uh, you know, as a sort of final question to, to wrap things up, because I don't want to talk about every little detail about what do you think about the 14th amendment? What do you think about the second amendment? Uh, people should, should definitely read the book, um, is, you know, to, to what extent do you, do you think of Thomas and his, uh, you know, far right conservative views as, coming from a sort of a reactionary sentiment, um, especially a feeling of just being utterly demonized, his sense of demonization at the hands of the liberal establishment. Um, I'll answer that in a second. But, you know, one thing I do want to say about the book and about Tom, because we didn't really get a chance to talk about his jurisprudence, is that the views that I've been talking about that he had as a younger man and, 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 and so on, What's so remarkable is that those views are to be found in his Supreme Court opinions um, and not just in the usual places that one might look, let's say, on affirmative action, the explicit race cases. You find it in his position, for instance, on the right to bear arms, on gun rights, um, which has a long tradition in the black nationalist and in black historical pantheon of black arms. Um, you find it in his ideas around um, campaign finance. You find it in his ideas around the takings clause. It's it's what's so what's so fascinating about Thomas is just how comprehensive that vision is. And so I would encourage people, not just for my own reasons of self interest, but also just you know for knowledge to read the book because it just shows how in case after case after case this black nationalist conservatism comes out. Um, in terms of you know the question you're ans- asking about about reaction, I mean I, I think I would explain it slightly differently. That um, uh, it you know it partakes of I, I want to go back to that moment where he starts turning to the right. Um, it really partakes of a fifth, half century um, politics of defeat. You know the black freedom struggle was defeated, not in every respect, but. Um, uh, it, it was, um, the United States today is more racially segregated than it was under the Reagan administration, the wealth, the racial wealth gap, um, black voting rights, all of these markers of progress are now markers of regress. And I think at moments like that, it's extraordinarily difficult for people, you know, to believe in a project like the left's project, because what the left's project is not just about freedom and equality. It's about the politics of freedom and equality. It's that you understand the political politics. And that, again, I want it the broadest sense, not just voting, but 
social protests, social movements, other forms of radicalism, uh, that you understand this as having a kind of transformational capacity and effect, a potential. Um, and Thomas writes from a position that is the opposite of that. It's that uh, racism is permanent and ineradicable, and that the best that Black people as a marginalized, subjugated group can hope for is in a kind of survival and withdrawal to self or the collective self. Um, and uh, that, it, that there is a kind of political quiescence um, that I think is, you know, extraordinarily dangerous. Um, it's a quick final word on this. Albert Hirschman, the social scientist, had this wonderful book years ago um, called The Rhetoric of Reaction. And he said there's three types of reactionary argument. There's perversity, which is if you, know, if you do X, you'll produce the opposite. So you try to reduce poverty, you create poverty. There's jeopardy. If you do X, you might achieve it, but you'll threaten something else. So you'll reduce poverty, black poverty, let's say, or poverty in general, but you'll uh, destroy the family or you'll destroy the work ethic or something like that. So that's um, jeopardy. But then there's a final argument that Hirschman identifies, and it's called futility. And that is, you're not going to threaten anything at all. The worst, most lethal argument against any kind of attempt at transformation is you won't do anything at all. Um, and I think the, part of the reason why that argument is so dangerous is that it it, it has a certain left-wing version of it, which is struck the structural nature of anything, racism, sexism, and that agency is uh, incapable of doing anything about that, whether it's individual or collective agency. And Thomas is that moment, is the futilitarian moment of, of reactionary thought. Uh, and for that reason, because it is so appealing in a way, not just to the right, but to the left, uh, I think that's really what he speaks to, is, 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 is that moment in American politics that we're in. Yeah, that's a that's actually a really interesting uh, observation. Um, the the sort of the feudal Thomas's kind of uh, feudal perspective on not feudal but futile perspective on politics. Uh, you know, the the last question that I want to ask you is if there's anything new that you're working on, either you know related to this project. Uh, you mentioned at the beginning that you thought you were done with the right. Um, so if so, what what else? Or if not. You know what? 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 What issues are you still looking at? Yeah, I mean, I'm working a lot now on political economy and ideas about capitalism from basically Adam Smith onward. So I'm I'm knee deep in in that and trying to uh, you know resist weighing in on every latest blip of unfair. <laughs> no, right. <laughs> well. Uh, thank you so much for being on the New Books Network. It was great talking to you. And I and yeah, if people go to the show notes, they'll find a link to the book. I highly recommend people read it. It's it's a highly readable book and very interesting. So thank you. Thank you very much. 